From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. The lobbying scandal surrounding the now-collapsed Greensill Capital has taken another damaging turn for the Tories. Documents show the government allowed a top civil servant to join Greensill as an advisor to its board in September 2015, two months before he left the civil service. It comes after Boris Johnson's attempt to draw a line under the scandal by launching an inquiry into how the former Prime Minister David Cameron was allowed to put pressure on ministers over the now insolvent lender. Well, a watchdog has revealed that Cameron was texting the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, about a coronavirus loan scheme he wanted the firm to have access to. He also took Greensill's boss for a private drink with the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. Now, some claim Cameron's position gave the company an unfair advantage. And now Labour's Rachel Reeves wants MPs to set up a special inquiry. To get to the bottom of it, to take evidence in public to be able to compel witnesses and documents to, and to make recommendations so that we can ensure nothing like this ever happens again. Well, so how damaging is this growing scandal? And what does it tell us about how lobbying works in the current system? I'm very pleased to say joining us now is Stephen Hammond, Conservative MP for Wimbledon. Stephen, thanks for being with us. A very good morning to you. Now, it seems wrong on the surface that a civil servant should be able to work as an advisor for a commercial company while still working inside the government. It does seem it was legal. So surely the system needs reform. I think there has been widespread surprise at this development. I think this, this is very, this is different, and we may want to discuss other matters about this in a moment. But actually having a civil servant who is both employed by the public sector to do a public sector job and to uh, and potentially a full-time public sector job and be employed by another company seems odd. I don't know of many other circumstances where senior civil service uh, might be so. There may be other roles around the country where people do you know, part-time roles in the civil service and they're therefore allowed to do outside other interests. But to do, for have a senior civil servant who clearly is doing this uh, in a role in a department um, where which the company he's moving to could affect the government is odd. Uh, and I think this is a real question for the people who, uh, for the for the head of the civil service at the time. I mean, it's, it, it is a question for government, but actually mm. it's a question for the civil service as well. Okay, but should people with great influence, like former prime ministers, be able to push for government access for firms? Well, the issue issue here is uh, whether or not there is currently a set of rules and 
there is a very there's a, I guess there is a very difficult line, and the uh, the reason why Eric Tickles I think has written his letter is that there, normally ministers you know within two years of leaving office have to seek his advice as to all that, his committee's advice as to whether they can take up roles, and in that advice it says that you must not use your undue influence to lobby to lobby, but you can you can give advice to the company, and there's a I guess the problem here is what is the difference? What you know, David Cameron clearly has lobbied. The question is, um, or, or he has clearly sought to make the case. Um, whether or not that case has gone beyond what what is what is in the rules is difficult to uh, difficult to discern. It may that's why I think it's right that the Prime Minister has set up an inquiry. Well, Stephen, I mean, I suppose the problem is you've got uh, not only uh, the pushing at the door by David Cameron, but a certain amount of receptiveness on the other side. I mean, we know that Rishi Sunak didn't uh, accept what uh, David Cameron was pushing necessarily, but he, he engaged with him. At the same time, Matt Hancock went for a drink, a drink with Lex Greensill. I mean, this looks bad, even if there's no actual corruption involved. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it, it, it can it certainly uh, certainly may look bad, but equally, um, you know, Matt Hancock made the point yesterday that he, as soon as it touched on departmental issues, he made sure that there is a full record uh, with the civil service of what was said. There's also a point here: is are we are we actually saying? You know, I, I think the rules need to be tight and the rules need to be clear, but we are surely not saying that politicians should not engage with business. Uh, and there's yeah, there yeah. What is what is the difference between having a meeting and lobbying. And sometimes I, I guess that must be difficult to define. But you clearly, surely you're not saying that politicians should be in an ivory tower. And I, you know, I think that with properly, properly set out and properly enforced rules, politicians should certainly meet business. Otherwise they have... Yeah, they become detached from the real yeah. world. No, but nobody's suggesting that there should be no contact between government and well, officials and, and business. I mean, but I some it's, people are. it's problematic when the regulator is perhaps seen to be toothless and the rules are not seen to be tough enough. And then surely also quite worrying is the fact that this actually only came to light because Greensill failed. And so that sort of raises questions in people's minds. Yeah, well, in fact, of course, uh, Caroline, the regulator proved not to be toothless because of what 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 is coming out i think and uh, but no i mean look there can there should be and must be no corruption the rules need to be clear people need to abide by the rules if the rule needs changing then we should have a full discussion about what the rules should change to i'm not yeah. i'm not condoning anyone who breaks the rules nor am i trying to suggest this is a trivial event it should be properly investigated but do you also feel the rules should be tightened? If they came to ask you, would you say the current system clearly isn't doing what it should? I think in large part, in my ministerial experience, which is now almost two years out of date for the last time I was in ministerial office, um, I think the rules on the whole, ministers knew what they were doing and, and they worked pretty well. But yeah, I am absolutely uh, clear that we should have uh, a review to see whether the rules need tightening and if they do to, to make sure that public have confidence uh, in the system then that, then we must do that hmm. one of the newspapers had a headline using a word that is rem- you know, evocative for um for, for some sleaze does this create the aura of sleaze around the tory party i mean alongside concerns that they've been around cronyism um, with the purchasing of PPE equipment. I mean, that's the worry too. Yeah, 
it clear it clearly is a worry and the party that's why i think the prime minister has been absolutely clear that this there must be an inquiry without fear or favor uh, and therefore it's right that it should actually happen i mean i you know i know having been a po- having been a politician for a number of years that accusations of corruption cronyism sleep uh, undermine undermine governments and undermine political parties uh, i fought the 97 general election in that atmosphere uh, and whilst the vast majority uh, and the very 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 vast majority of people in public life from all sides go into it for exactly the right reasons and utterly honest you know we mu- we must make sure that the public believe that and understand that um and i think you know, that we have seen over the years uh, a number of accusations certainly the the latter parts of the major administration, parts of the Blair administration, were absolutely rife with accusations of cronyism, pointing their own chums to boards, public boards. And you know, we must now make sure, uh, and there make sure that the public have confidence in the system. And therefore, you know, if as I've just said a moment ago, if mm. to ensure that confidence, the rules have to change, then that that may well be a consequence. But we need to be clear. One, uh, I think we need to separate the two things. One is a public inquiry or an inquiry which the Prime Minister has set up into this into this particular event and the overall way the rules operate. Let me ask you, if I may then, Stephen, about something else, which is uh, what's been going on in Northern Ireland, because uh, as you've all been aware, the events, of course, the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, amongst other, have overshadowed what has become a crisis developing in Northern Ireland, a real concern. And uh, Lord Frost is on his way, I gather, to, to Brussels to talk about changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, as a way of many people seeing squaring a circle, because in the end, isn't what's going on between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic and the UK in terms of customs unions and all the rest of it just unworkable? There is no way you can make this work. Well, uh, I suppose the the first and obvious point is that uh, the UK signed an agreement uh, which effectively put into place uh, these rules, and therefore, you know, we have to accept uh, some blame for that. The last thing anyone wants to see is any resurrection of the violence. So, making how we make those rules workable, or how how we make sure that there is an agreement to change the rules. Uh, it seems to me that there was a possibility that we could have allowed, uh, I'm sure that Lord Frost would be trying to initially look for uh, an extension of the exemptions uh, which were put in place at the time of the transition arrangement. Uh, we also have to recognise that you know, we we will need to potentially renegotiate that, but that may well have other consequences. But the key, the key thing is that the rules are, uh, unfortunately, some of the rules that we are now seeing are a consequence of the of the deal that was signed um, when we left the European Union. Uh, now we now, now we recognise that they're proving to be unworkable or mm. very difficult to but work. What, I suppose read, why have to, have now, to, have to, have though? Surely those warnings were given well in advance. They were by a number. They were by a number of people. Um, but now I think there are two things. One is uh, there is a recognition that the rules are different. I think there is a recognition that some of the economic pressures are changing, that is particularly concerned, and economic trends are changing, that's particularly concerning some communities. Uh, and it's right, I think, that the government, uh, including uh, obviously the Secretary of State, but the Prime Minister as well, mm. are doing all they can to work with the Irish government and the Northern Ireland Assembly 
to make sure tensions are decreased and peace returns. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine seems to be having a bit of shadow put over it because there's another setback in a way for the global rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. J&J is suspending the rollout of its jab in Europe as the firm and US authorities review six cases of rare blood clots, similar to those reported for the AstraZeneca vaccine. US infectious diseases expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says investigations are likely to take a few days. This is a really rare event. If you look at what we know so far, there have been six out of the 6.85 million doses, which is less than one in a million. Well, the government here says the delay to J&J's rollout won't affect the UK inoculation programme. They've ordered 30 million doses, although the jab hasn't yet been approved for use in the UK. And a major UK study looking into mixing and matching coronavirus vaccines will now include two additional jabs. So the trial, which launched with the AstraZeneca and Pfizer injections in February, will also look at Moderna and Novavax vaccines. Professor Matthew Snape is the trial's chief investigator. These mixed schedules might well be the key to getting two doses into as many people in the world as possible. That's why these data are vital. This is the first study in the world that is looking at these across these different combinations. And as I say, there's a lot of interest in these studies internationally. So people taking part will get one jab followed by a different one a few weeks later to see if it affects the immune response. Now, it's a big day for the Labour Party and its supporters because the United Union General Secretary election formally starts today. According to the Huffington Post, the union is facing allegations of a stitch-up after new rules appear to make it harder for critics of Len McCluskey, the current holder of that office, to get on the ballot. It says MPs and Unite members are angry over internal election guidance that raised the threshold for the minimum number of nominations that a candidate would need. And now let's pick up on the big uh, news story today around Greensill Capital. More revelations. Civil servants uh, moonlighting the rules around lobbying uh, seeming incredibly weak. Let's bring in our Bloomberg opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Therese, um, so as well as the former Prime Minister David Cameron being involved, although cleared of any um, sort of wrongdoing or breaches of the lobbying rules. Now it's a top civil servant who had a job advising Greensill whilst he was still in government. I mean, this does not look good for the Tories. Yeah, I think it's very hard at this stage to argue that the existing rules are good enough. So, I mean, the government's defense is that, uh, you know, that, that, that no rules were broken, that it's sort of, you know, that, that, that the lines are pretty clear, or that, you know, you do have occasionally junior civil servants who uh, serve as advisory 
uh, positions to schools or charity boards or that kind of thing. But it's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? I mean, this is, you know, clear uh, you know, arrangement for profit. And I think, you know, it didn't serve David Cameron at all that he waited so long to make his statement. Um, and I think it doesn't serve Boris Johnson that he's, you know, just really tried to draw a line under it in a way that hasn't fully kind of exposed mm. all of the information that the government knows. And that just keeps journalists digging for what else is out there. Yeah, and I mean, it was interesting. We spoke uh, earlier to Stephen Hammond, Conservative MP for Wimbledon, who drew comparisons, as other people have, I suppose, to what happened at the end of the John Major administration, the allegations then of, of sleaze and cronyism, money being, at that point, being put into small brown envelopes, mm. famously. We haven't reached that stage, but there must be a sense that this is a this has a slightly similar feel of perhaps an administration that's going careless about observing the rules. Well, I, I think if that happens, it has the potential to that potential to be very damaging for for Boris Johnson. So far, he seemed to have batted away a lot of those allegations of sleaze that the Labour Party has tried to hang on him, especially regarding you know contracts for PPE. Um, and uh, you know, the argument the government has made is that it was in the sort of fog of war, and they had to kind of get. Uh, uh, you know, try to contract as quickly as possible uh, to get supplies to hospitals and that sort of thing. Well, that doesn't wash so much when you have, you know, one after another of these things. And, you know, the Greensill, um, uh, you know, the, the, the whole Greensill affair just, you know, doesn't sit well. Uh, and I think, you know, that's why we're seeing Johnson trying to, you know, draw a line under, distance the government, set up this independent inquiry. Labor's calling for a cross-party uh, parliamentary uh, a commission to look at it, and the government is still, you know, trying to resist that. But, you know, you just don't see this disappearing quickly so long as people feel that they don't have the, you know, all the information out there. Were there other communications with Rishi Sunak, for example? You know, what, what, what were the, you know, what was the extent of the contact with uh, government? Government officials and civil servants. So, I, you know, I think um, you know, there's now a great dash for you know uh, to reveal you know, new pieces of information there. Mm -hmm. And as long as there's a sense that there's more out there, it you know it just doesn't go away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, another, I have to point out, another inquiry launched. I think if we could keep a tally of every new inquiry launched, that would be quite something. Um, let's talk about something else, though, Brexit. Brexit bureaucracy. Um, I mean, we've been tracking, you know, 100 days since Brexit um, on the Bloomberg Terminal with lots of interesting pieces. And actually, one of those pieces today talking about the costs of bureaucracy perhaps fading for um, for British companies, even though it was extremely hefty at the start of the year. Yeah, I found that very interesting because it, it, there's so many different factors that we have to disentangle here. I mean, we know that, for example, there was a lot of stockpiling at the end of last year. We also know that while many big businesses were fairly prepared for Brexit, a lot of the small and medium-sized ones were not. So when trade, uh, you know, looked like it dropped off a cliff in January. I think volume of goods traded plunged at 36%. It wasn't that surprising. What was more surprising was the substantial rebound that we've seen in February, which is suggesting several things. One, that, you know, traders are ever, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, creative and innovative and, uh, you know, efficient at, at trying to find new ways of operating. Demand is still strong for trade um, between the U.K. and the E.U. And that sort of squares with estimates that the actual hit to GDP is not going to be quite as big as many feared. So uh, I think the OBR estimates it at about 0.5%, um, and uh, Bloomberg Intelligence is saying 3% by the end of the decade. I think the bigger question is what happens to productivity, because one of the mm. theories is that the knock-on effect is that it, it takes a hit to productivity of around 4%. And that is really, you know, the biggest long-term drag on the UK economy and on Boris Johnson's plans to level up. And that's what he's got to fix. And so, you know, how this feeds through into productivity, which comes in, you know, with how businesses, how competitive they are, uh, having access to best practice and that sort of thing, I think is the, is the real question that we can't answer in 100 days. For, but, but, you know, we'll, we'll get a bigger fix on that, um, I would say, you know, toward the end of this year. And just as one problem with Brussels perhaps is ebbing slightly, another one does seem to be building, or at least was until very recently. That, of course, is the troubles in Northern Ireland reflecting discontent about the outcome of the protocol very largely. Now, Chief Negotiator David Frost goes to Brussels on Thursday to discuss uh, the tensions, see if there's a way around this protocol. But I mean, in a way, is this a circle that can, can be squared? Is it something that can be solved? Yeah, it can't be solved without cooperation between... Uh, London and Brussels, that's, that's clear. And, we, we, you know, the other thing that's clear is that trust has been pretty low. The EU suspects bad faith on the UK side for suspending the protocol and is suing in the court. Uh, Britain, uh, you know, with some justification feels the EU drove a bargain in the name of preserving its single market that is undermining, uh, the peace in Northern Ireland and, and, you know, reaping damage more broadly. So I think it, for starters, there's going to have to be uh, a way to smooth the post-Brexit trade arrangements. The border mm. down the Irish Sea is, is just not working you know, quite predictably as well as, uh, you know, as, as either side, you know, thought it could work. And it's just a real question whether, uh, the, you know, it needs to, it needs to be enforced in the way it is or whether they can find some ways to smooth things and and you know that the uh, the other issue in the background which i think is harder to resolve is what is behind the um you know the violence and part of that is local gangsterism and um you know and and different sides of that very long conflict um you know provoking uh, each other and that i think that's going to be a harder one to solve but Smoothing the trade flows is probably the within the grasp of both sides and the immediate challenge, and that should help the other one as well. Mm. Uh, just briefly on on uh, something different, vaccines. The Prime Minister um, talking about whether it's lockdown or vaccination that has worked the most in terms of bringing down deaths and hospital admissions. Uh, not all of the health community seems to agree with his view. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> the, the, the Prime Minister clearly wants to deflect pressure to release the lockdown restrictions as soon as possible. And, you know, there, there's no question that they're both, um, you know, essential. People have to be vaccinated. And uh, I think, 
you know, he will just want to keep pointing to, uh, you know, what we're seeing in Europe with, you know, the rises in cases and more lockdowns to say that his, uh, his pathway is, is the correct one. Um, and I think, you know, you, at the same time, you have others who are pointing to the U.S., which has opened, you know, more, you know, more quickly, more broadly in some cases and seen yeah. a uh, quicker bounce back economically to say that he needs to, uh, you know, release restrictions sooner. So yeah. it's, it's hard for him to win on that one, I think, um, <laughs> you know. The, the, almost the yeah, he, he, he doesn't want to get into that debate he just wants to stick to his current lockdown just. program Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.